0: Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legfold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is one of our distinguished retirees. After a career both active duty Air Force and our Air National Guard base here in St. Paul, Minnesota, Sheila Jessen retired and moved into a new civilian occupation. In fact, a couple. She's currently employed by Cargill Corporation as their military sorcer. Did I get that right? Yes. Awesome. Well, welcome, Sheila. Thank you, Mark. It's great to have you here. Um, you started out during a really awesome time in our country's history, right in the middle of the Cold War and you had a pretty cool job. What was your first job in the Air Force?
1: So I joined the military 10 days after my 18th birthday. I was in a small town in Wisconsin, and I just knew I had to get out. So I found that the military joining the Air Force was gonna be my path to getting out of, out of town. And um, originally I joined to be a jet engine mechanic, uh, as that was my guaranteed job going into active duty. And then in basic training, they gave me a test. Everybody gets the D-Lab test to see if you have an aptitude for languages. And I scored high. They pulled me aside and said, "Hey, do you want to be a linguist?" And I'm like, "Sure. I don't. I don't know what that is, but it sounds good." And they said you can learn a foreign language and travel all over the world. And I thought, well, that sounds more interesting than having grease under my fingernails and the working on aircraft. So I thought, okay, I'll do it. So then they assign you your language, and back then that was the Cold War, so Russian was the primary language. So I got assigned. I requested, and I got assigned Russian. And then I spent my first year and a half learning Russian and going through a six months by school. Wow. In Texas.
0: So you, did you have a second language when you joined the Air Force initially? Like, did you take high school? Yeah. Latin I, or something? I took
1: French in middle school. Okay. And they say that if you attempt learning a language when you're younger, it makes your brain more flexible. And so I think that did help me score well on that test and um, do well in the Russian language school.
0: Okay. So the first, basically two and a half years of your career, you were in training.
1: It was about a year and a half. A year
0: and a half. Yep. And then where did you go? And then I
1: went to Isleson Air Force Base in Alaska, so that was a quite a, a switch. Um, um, very interesting to be able to live in Alaska for a couple of years. And that was an airborne reconnaissance unit, and so we flew um, specialized cargo planes along the borders of Russia, collecting data. And
0: you were up there listening. And
1: I wasn't allowed to fly because women weren't allowed to fly back then. It was deemed a combat mission. And so I was one of the first three women assigned there to do the groundwork um, to, to translate everything after they brought the information back.
0: So basically the plane would fly along the border, record mm-hmm. a bunch of stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then you sat someplace to decipher nice to cipher it. And, oh my goodness. <laughs> How many hours of listening and translating did you have on an average, I don't know, average flight?
1: Well, the flights were very long. They would fly, you know, 16, 18, 20-hour missions, and so um, a lot of data coming back, and we had a whole team that was, you know, even the people who flew would come back and do some of the work, the groundwork, and so it was a a lot of work.
0: A lot of work, I'm sure.
1: Working shift work, yeah.
0: Eventually, were you able to fly? Did they change the rules?
1: So they were starting to, so this was in the early 80s. They did change the rules at, like right around the mid to late 80s, and I was offered the AWACS to go down to Eielsen. A... AWACS is is the Airborne Warning and Control or something like that. I don't know exactly what it stands for, but it's the plane with the big black and white circling dome on top, mm-hmm. and um, they were going to send me to Elmendorf for that, or I could go to back to Monterey and go to Intermediate Russian... And I was Monterey, like, more California Al- yeah or I, was like, I was like more Alaska or California I'm like I'll take California Toth door door number two yeah <laughs> So then after that they sent me to Berlin and that was the bulk of my Russian language career I was in Berlin Germany I spent six years there and I was there during the time that the wall came down so that was really interesting what
0: was it what was interesting about I mean you and I were alive when we watched I watched that on TV because I was just getting just graduating high school that year. And I mean, to me, that was so much of growing up was that Cold War mentality, mm-hmm. and that that wall signified more than just a barrier between East and West Germany. It it signified kind of a barrier between people mm-hmm. and cultures. Um, what was it like being there? I mean, could you feel that sense? Oh of... Oh my
1: gosh, yeah. Um, I wrote a letter to my family that year because it happened in November, and I for I wrote a Christmas letter. It was my first one ever. And people took it to their local newspapers and had it published around the Midwest because it was really heartfelt. But I think, you know, when I got stationed in Berlin, um, they to give you a tour. They have like a, you know, a newcomer's orientation tour and they take you to the wall and they tell you the history and you go into the Reichstag. And they, in the Reichstag, there was a room that was all glass tables because in German there's a phrase about, you know, something shady is like under the table. So they want a glass table so that nothing could be under the table. You couldn't hide anything. Mm. So when they described that, that was going to be where they had the future unification discussions. And the wall had been built in 1961. I was born in 1962, so it was my whole life. And I thought, well, that's never going to happen. Like the wall is never going to come down because my whole life it's been there. And so then when a unification, when the wall did fall, it was like hard to believe. But I felt like in my letter I said, you know, we don't know what it's like to be divided like that. Imagine one day a wall comes up and half your family is on one side and the other half is on the other side, and you've been separated for 30 plus years. Like, we don't know how good we have it. We take things for granted. You know, I'd been to East Berlin and saw how drab and dreary it was and the quality of life they had there. And just right on the other side of the wall it's like a sparkling Berlin and just like, asking everybody at Christmas was just take some time and be grateful for what you have and the freedoms that you have because this country didn't have it for so long, and now they're getting getting to taste it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What
0: an amazing thing. Published author. If I would have <laughs> known, I would have introduced you a little differently.
1: <laughs> I'll have to send you the article.
0: That would be great. Yeah. I would love to read that. Uh, so you stuck with active duty for another couple of years after the wall came down and left active duty in 91. Am mm-hmm. I getting that right?
1: I uh, actually left active duty in 88 but I stayed in Berlin oh. and I got a defense contractor job so I ended up staying in Berlin until after 91 and when the wall came down my job was you know kind of doing some spy work around the Russians and when they all went home my job kind of evaporated so then I came back to the US.
0: Can I call you a spy?
1: <laughs> I'm a retired spy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it sounds so cool. Uh, so retired spy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you left Left Germany, yes. um, kind of right there at that tipping mm-hmm. point in a military career where you're yep. right around that nine, ten mm-hmm. years, might as well make it a career, maybe I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Well, what was your decision point? Why didn't you stick it out at that point with the active duty side?
1: So when I got out in 88, I was having a lot of like, now and nowadays they call it a quarter-life crisis because it was in my late 20s. But I was wondering, what is my skill sets going towards? So during the time I was in Berlin, the U.S. had been invading Panama and invading Guatemala or uh, Granada, and we were doing some really, I think maybe that was during the first Iraq war, too. I can't remember. But anyway, um, the Germans were really outraged, and they were calling us murderers. So I remember I was running on the base. There was a, a road around the flight line in Berlin, and there was a giant fence around it, and I was a chain link fence, and I was running inside the fence, and the Germans on their side of the fence were screaming at me, calling me a murderer, and I was like, I didn't, I didn't murder anything. But then I'm like, wait a second, I am part of this military industrial complex, and I was starting to have second thoughts about like, I know that what we do is important and has to be done, but do I want my talents to be supporting that or not? So, I went to my art professor, and I'm like, I'm having all these questions, and. She told me, you're having a midlife crisis, which she was dead on. And so that was what made me decide, you know, for the rest of my career, maybe I want to put my energies into something that I could, you know, believe in that, that, um, so I was just having that, like, why am I here moment, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I got out.
0: So belief kind of drove Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, went back to Wisconsin.
1: Came back to Wisconsin briefly, but then I landed in the Twin Cities and then I faced what a lot of veterans face, is when they get out of the military, they come back home and they don't know anybody. And then it's like trying to like build a whole new community around yourself and find a job when you don't know anybody. So I faced a lot of those initial transition problems that a lot of veterans face even today. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: When you came back to the, I guess eventually the Twin Cities area here, you had that break in service, but then
1: mm-hmm.
0: you landed back in uniform. Um, yeah. What brought you back, that sense of community?
1: So I, I never really found my niche. I, I would get a job uh, as a female veteran. I I wasn't taken seriously. My work experience wasn't valued. Um, I was turned down for jobs that should have been an easy, you know, hire. Um, so I ended up doing administrative type work, and just like every two years, I get bored and I get a different job. And so then I, I realized that, you know, I kind of miss that camaraderie. I miss the military the aspect, you know. And so when I looked at going back in, I met a recruiter at the state fair, an Army Guard recruiter. And so uh, uh, Clayton was his name. So he said, hey, you want to join the Army Guard? I'm like, well, what I really want to do is be a recruiter because I felt like I got a lot out of the military. And I'm like, maybe I could give that back by helping other people make that decision, right? Because I got my education out of the military. I got to travel, see the world, you know, I was doing something important. And so I'm like, maybe I can help other people find that path too. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up as a recruiter in the Army Guard for a couple of years. I joined in 1998. They gave me a chance. And then, uh, then I was like, wait, what am I doing in green? So then the Air Guard had an opening over here. So then I landed here in 2000.
0: Was it, um, one of the questions that I've asked on the podcast here is are we getting it right and when it comes to how this level this degree of equality in mm-hmm. opportunity for women versus men especially during that time you're mm-hmm. saying that in the civilian sector it just wasn't mm-hmm. recognized I mean you're a Russian linguist and a retired spy mm-hmm. and you're taking administrative positions that I mean it to me, that sounds absolutely ridiculous in this day day and age. And then you came back to the military. Why? Because there was better opportunity for you.
1: Yeah, we, part of it was just missing it, right? Like I, sure, it had been part of my formative years, and I kind of missed it. And I also, because I wasn't finding my path in the civilian world, and I felt like I was just treading water, like not getting anywhere. Um, you know, I had. I think one of my key moments when I was in that transition. When I got out in 91 and came back here, I applied for a technical writer position. I, had a, I, had a, I hired a headhunter to help me find the right role. And he said, this is a great role for you, and this is a great company. And when I interviewed, I had a great interview with the engineers. I was at a medical device company. And then the HR lady called him and said, she's lying because there's no way she did all the things that she was said she did. So I probably looked like I was 19 because I was really youthful looking, but I'd been in the military for 10 or 11 years, with, mm-hmm. you know, working with the government. But she didn't believe anything that I was on my resume or what, you know, said I had said I did. And, and rather than just like saying, well, screw that company, I'm going to go find something else, I just gave up. I thought, well, that door is closed. And I, I wonder sometimes would I have made that decision if I'd been a male? You know, would I have just gone, ah, you know, I'll apply I'll again somewhere else? But I just didn't. I, I don't know why. I wonder why did I take that no as like, no, this is not the path for you at all, mm-hmm. instead of just like finding another application, you know.
0: So now you've made that transition after retiring successfully out of the military and mm-hmm. having a you know, brilliant and successful career out here. You went back to the civilian sector. Is it better?
1: I think it's better. I think there's a lot more support now um, for hiring veterans. Um, And I think women veterans still have a little bit more of an uphill battle internally and externally. Mm -hmm. But I think it's way better than it was when I transitioned out the first time.
0: Understood. Um, Still a ways to go, right? But you talk about that internal struggle. And I want to get into that a little bit more. When you got out, having gone through this I cannot imagine the the feeling when somebody accuses you of lying about something that you've poured your heart and soul into mm-hmm. for so long. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that just sounds painful. Did that memory come back when you retired and you were out looking for another, a new job? Did that motivate you in one way or did it discourage you in one way? How, mm-hmm. how did that experience shape your your transition into the civilian sector the second go around?
1: I don't think it has even. I don't think it impacted me as much because I'm older and more confident in myself than I probably was back then. It's kind of like that story has resurfaced now that I'm helping veterans a lot now, especially women veterans, and and sharing that story to say, hey, if you do get a door shut on you, don't mean don't take it like that's that's over. Just be persistent, be resilient, mm-hmm. right, and keep keep trying. And so a lot of times when I'm talking to veterans and I'm looking at women veterans on LinkedIn, perhaps, and I'll see the person is getting out as an E6 or an E7, and they're applying for administrative assistant jobs, or I can see that their LinkedIn profile is aiming towards that, or maybe they've gotten a job doing that already. And I'm like, girl, you need to like aim higher. And so I'm kind of coaching the women to say, hey, yeah, you can do that, but what is that what you want to do? you know, and maybe you do, maybe that, and that's okay. Nothing wrong with it. I I have a male veteran I was working with just this month. And I think he was an E8 or an E9 out somewhere else in the, in the country. And he just emailed me on LinkedIn yesterday and said, Hey, never mind about the job search. He was working with hiring your heroes to get a internship somewhere. And he's like, I got a driver, a truck driver job. And I'm going to work from 830 to 1230. I'm going to spend the rest of the day with my family. And I'm really excited about it. Like, and I'm and like, so, so a totally no pressure, no stress job. And he can spend more time off and kind of be semi-retired. And I'm like, good for him. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't have to go land another corporate job when you get out. So it's really a personal choice. But I also think women need to own their accomplishments and own their value and find those roles because the men are doing it. So we should be doing it too. Agreed. Yeah.
0: Agreed. And, and giving that good hard look and saying, you know, wow. The military gives so many good opportunities to people regardless of where they start out mm-hmm. in life. You know, a small, small town in Wisconsin, or uh, I, I had a guest on that grew up in the south side of Chicago and was already accomplished mm-hmm. in his civilian career and then decided to join the military. I mean, anyone from any facet in life can get some of those really good skills, mm-hmm. I mean, can become a spy.
1: How <laughs> awesome is that,
0: right? Um so now you're recruiting for Cargill. Is it, a, is it a recruiter job?
1: Yeah, so even when I was applying for it, and interviewing for it, I was confused because they were using this word called sorcerer, and I didn't really quite know what that meant, but I thought, well, it must be like a fancy word for a recruiter. Okay,
0: for just in case, I want to make sure we're clear. It's sorcerer. not sorcerer right, for Cargill. <laughs> <laughs> Pointy hat and yeah, like a witch's a wand. sorcerer. Sorcerer, okay. Yeah.
1: And so what a sourcer does in, in corporate America is they are like internal headhunters. And so they're um, searching for talent. They're doing the outreach piece. The recruiters do the full cycle of recruiting where they post the job, they interview the candidates, they recommend them to the hiring manager, then they make the offer. But the sourcer's kind of like outside of that. And they're just like, the recruiter might say, hey, I have a really hard position to fill. Can you go and find me some people? So we go out on LinkedIn and try to like attract talent and say hey we got this great opportunity would you be interested in talking to me about it so we're kind of like you know warming them up getting them interested and so i specifically work on military and veteran sourcing so trying to get more people into the pipeline for Cargill for who are military veterans
0: are you the only person that specializes in finding military leads for cargill i am okay that's a lot i mean it's a it's a big big company
1: and it's a big company (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's a lot of a uh, lot of responsibility, which I think is requisite with your resume, yeah. right?
1: Well, and you can't boil the ocean, right? And so it's like you can only do what you can do. Um, there's this uh, little story I've heard about like seeing somebody on the on this beach, and they, there's all these starfish that have gotten stranded on the beach, and they're picking them up and throwing them one back one back into the ocean. Yeah, and somebody came by and said, "What are you doing? You're never going to be able to save all these starfish." And like, what can save this one? And as they throw that one in. So it's like, I can just help the people I can help. And I'm happy with that. You know, I wish I could help all of them, but I'm, I'm limited in time and, you know, um, ability. So I'll, I'll help the ones that I can reach and help. And the same thing when I was a recruiter here, right? You can't recruit everybody, right. but you just help the ones that show up at your doorstep or that you meet at a high school or whatever.
0: Sheila, I got a great, uh, when I asked, when I tell people, like, hey, I'm having so-and-so on the podcast, do you have any questions that you would want me to ask them? i got a great compliment for you in the form of a question. Oh. Uh, your recruiting style was described as making the recruit feel like they were the only person in the world you were working with. Oh. How do you do that? What, what does that boil down to? I mean, you were just yeah. talking about saving starfish. Yeah. And it made me think of that, you know, that starfish in your hand is probably the most precious starfish in the world at the time Mm -hmm. where did you get that ability of of caring for the individual while you still have this whole ocean worth that you want to boil right yeah how do you do that
1: um I I think I I take each person as they come right and each person has value and special uniqueness about them and like I wanted to find that and I wanted to like connect with them and like help them understand what Joining the military was going to be about pros and cons and I always felt like if I was giving them a full picture then they would be joining for the right reasons and if they join for the right reasons you're going to have a happy troop out here right and you're going to have good morale and if they if what I tell them is something they go oh that's not going to fit for me then I'm like good don't join please don't right and so I felt like I was more focused on the person than the numbers right because if I was focused on the numbers then I would be pressuring you and like, oh, i got to get this person in. And you wouldn't feel like they really cared about you. You'd care, feel like I only cared about a number. But I really actually truly did care about the person. Mm-hmm. What, and if, they, if it wasn't right for them, I would be happy if they didn't join, right? Um, because it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be a win for the wing either, right? Because if you end up get, if I trick someone into joining and then they're really unhappy, then you've got all kinds of new problems. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't want to work with somebody who's unhappy or thinks they've recruited or tricked them. And so I think it was really just that being authentic and being focused on what's right for the individual and not I got to get a number today. Right.
0: Yeah. That has translated and infected the culture that we have out here at the at the wing. I mean, I this is a place. It's a good organization. It has 1200 people in it. Mm-hmm. And of those 1200 people, many of them who are now old folks like me mm-hmm. um they were recruited in by you and made to feel that way on their first steps on their journey out here. Yeah. How many people do you think you've impacted?
1: So, I believe I've recruited over 600 people into this wing. Um, uh, so, half, you know. <laughs> uh, and of course, some left and, and, you know, didn't stay around, which is fine too. Even my own nephew, he served nine years and he said he's got a good growing career at it big corporation, and he said, I think I'm going to focus on that. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, you you did more than most, right? Mm-hmm. You, you signed up, you served, you de- deployed. You have nothing to be embarrassed about by leaving. Right. Um, so yeah, well, that's great to hear. And, you know, I'm so proud of the people that are out here that I helped recruit. And I'm just like, honored that I was good, got to be their recruiter. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, even the questions that I got from people that, that said, oh, you're fantastic. You're interviewing <laughs> her because they just think back of how you taught people how to treat people mm-hmm. when they come into our organization. Is that something you've been able to carry into Cargill?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm obviously my style of recruiting hasn't changed. I'm going to continue to be the same person I am. And so I think that you know when I talk to somebody, like I'm working on a program right now, helping um, veterans get into manufacturing, and you know I, I talk to a I'll call up somebody and they'll say oh I'm heading to Pittsburgh and I'm like oh I don't have anything located in Pittsburgh I can't help you join Cargill, but hey as long as we got you on the phone let me tell you a little bit about how to use this tool to find a job in Pittsburgh, because I want to leave them with something of value that's going to help them in their job search. I don't want to be just like oh we can't help you goodbye mm-hmm. you know. And so I hope that every interaction is like giving them something that they can use and help them in their jobs or even if I can't help them.
0: So is if I'm hearing you correctly, yes, you're working for Cargill and they've given you this great opportunity to not only help them, but along the way you're meeting a lot of these transitioning veterans and you're you're giving them some tools and some skills to help them beyond the company that you're serving. Mm-hmm. Is the company's value uh, or the organization's goals um, or mission or vision, does that fit?
1: Um, Ultimately, my goal is to get people in the pipeline. But I think with with the military vetting, especially when you're transitioning, there's so much that you don't know. There was so much that I didn't know when I was going through that transition. So if I take 10 minutes to tell you something extra like, I always call it the bonus round, like, Mm -hmm. let me give you a little extra information that might help you in your search. You know, 10 minutes, I can afford that. And leave that person with a great impression, like, hey, this recruiter couldn't help me, but they gave me some tool that I can use or some information about salary or whatever it might be that helped them understand some area that they had a gap. Um, They might refer refer their friend to me tomorrow, Mm -hmm. right? And the same thing when you're a recruiter here, if you treat everybody with respect and dignity, even if they don't join, they might be like, oh, man, my cousin should talk to that recruiter. Oh, my best friend should talk to that recruiter. So y- you never know where the dividends are going to fall. Yeah. But I think, like you said at the beginning, treating people well will is the best way to do business, right?
0: I I, I agree. And <laughs> then, like I said, I think we're seeing that as a part of our culture out here. Even your nephew, after nine years out here, chose to leave and mm-hmm. take something else on. He's probably one of our best non-paid recruiters out there, sure. if his experience was yeah. good and he was treated with dignity, mm-hmm. uh, that that pays dividends that we'll never really mm-hmm. be able to measure, Right, which is a great tool. Um, so life has changed since you were a recruiter out here, and now we have social media and recruiting is completely different. Um, what challenges did you really face as a recruiter before the social media thing? It, recruiting was completely different back then how how did you go about getting an average lead and how has that made you better now
1: Mm -hmm. you know because I worked for the army guard as recruiter and in the air guard as recruiter I got to see both sides of the fence right Mm -hmm. and so the army guard really was more about canvassing you know cold calling and going to your schools every month and uh, seeing a kid in the mall and stopping him, whatever it took, right, to get your numbers. Um, In the Air Guard, just because, you know, we're lucky. People want to serve in the military. They go to the, hopefully they gravitate to the Air Force. So it was a little bit like fishing out of a bucket to work here. So I don't know if, um, what were the challenges? I think one of the biggest challenges was, you know, the diversity piece um, back then. Um, And I know that we've done We made huge strides in in women hiring here at the wing. I know when I was here, our numbers were incredible, and I had a a female um, recruiting team when I left. Um, That helps, I think. Um, And also having diverse, you know, it's kind of like you have to see it to be it, right? And so I know that you have a diverse uh, recruiting team now, and I think that's important. Um, But we were just kind of getting our feet wet and, like, doing the outreach. So we did a lot of uh, summertime activities because we go to every – festival and carnival in the in the city. So I think one of the personal challenges was it took up all your uh, time in the summer. Like every weekend, we had to go to an event. Um, whereas in the Army Guard, they had 100-plus recruiters. They may only have to do one a month or one a summer, mm-hmm. but on my poor team, we were doing something almost every weekend, so that was a big challenge. And
0: you were still fishing out of a bucket.
1: Yeah. We didn't really need to go to those events to get the numbers, but we needed to go to those events to increase diversity. So it was important... But it was very challenging personally as a recruiter to have to give up all your weekends. Right.
0: Because yeah. the goal wasn't to get the numbers in the door. The goal was to change the way our force looked. Yeah. Why is changing the way our force looks important?
1: Well, I think you you know, we're a state organization. We want to reflect the demographics of the state. And I think that, you know, even in corporate America, having a diverse team brings diverse ideas. And so they show, they have research that shows that a diverse team is more successful. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, obviously that's important in the military too, to be the most successful. And I also think that even though the wing is kind of a legacy organization where a lot of people's kids and nephews and nieces and sons and daughters and granddaughters join the guard, we also need to bring in those families that never have any, any history of military service because they have the same rights to the benefits, you know, the educational benefits. It's a leg up for a lot of people that are, you know, at that level where they don't have the family resources to pay for college, and so, I think it's the right thing to do, right?
0: Agreed. Yeah. We, we've um, just passed the, or uh, we're about the time of, of the, the difficulty we had last summer out here where suddenly the entire military was mobilized. Mm-hmm. and sent to downtown Minneapolis and downtown St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've used the phrase, we have we brought our airmen and our soldiers in, and their boots were on one side of the line, but their heart might have been on the yeah. other. 500 people live in the Twin Cities area that serve in the National Guard. Yeah. I was and,
1: thinking about you guys yeah, during that whole time last summer. It was hard. Mm-hmm.
0: Um and so, when you talk about having a diverse force and why that is important, uh, I couldn't think of a better articulation of why it's important than those challenging days that we had last summer. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were in your military career, did you ever think that that was a purpose of our National Guard?
1: To do like civil unrest? Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, when I would talk to recruits, I would talk about the legacy of the Guard and that we started in 1666. So we outdate the country. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is that in 350 plus years, the Guard is still relevant, but our missions change, right? And so that's okay. Um, it It is difficult when it is a situation where, you know, the society is split. But I think that Um, When I saw the guard come in and and things settled down and they stopped burning the city, um, that was a good thing. And so sometimes you do have to, like, um, utilize the guard for those types of events for the safety and security of all citizens. So I was, you know, um, glad, thankful that we had a guard to call up at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've been talking with Sheila Jessen, published author, retired (laughs) spy, and uh, current military sorcerer for Cargill. We're gonna take a break and hear from one of our newest recruiters here at the wing, and then we'll be right back, stick around. Hey you guys, this is Staff Sergeant Gallucci with the 133rd Airlift Wing Recruiting Office, the new recruiter over here. I was just uh, trying to introduce myself to you guys and talk about some rewarding careers we have. For any family or friends you may know that are looking to to, uh, enlist over here, we have aircraft maintenance, aircraft fuel systems, uh, and plenty of other rewarding careers with very nice bonuses. Um, If you guys have any questions or would like to contact me, you can get me at 612-713-2035, 612-713-2035. I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back. I've been talking with Sheila Jessen, one of our distinguished retirees here from the 133rd Air Wing, and we've been talking a lot about recruiting and bringing new members into a career, whether it's with a Cargo Corporation, where she is a military sourcer, or uh, into the military and talking about people's opportunities that they're given when uh, joining the military service. Um, I have been told, Sheila, that you are not a morning person. Is that true? That's true. So how do you get up in the morning and get yourself motivated? After a career in the military where it's like we do more before four o'clock in the morning, that great Mm -hmm. commercial from the army, Mm -hmm. how did you motivate yourself to get up in the morning and do when you're just not a morning person? Or was it just I just have gotten sick of waking up in the morning and now I'm declaring it. I'm not a morning person. Now You know
1: what's protected. funny, Mark, yeah. is that when I was a kid in, in middle school, I was a papered girl.
0: You delivered papers. I delivered newspapers okay. before school. Oof.
1: For like four years. So like from middle school and then a little bit into high school. And so I always say that I used up all my early mornings when I was in, <laughs> in school. Um, so I can do it. Um and, you know, of course, in the military when I was on active duty, it's just you have a schedule and you meet that schedule. No big deal. You're used to it, basic training and onward. Um, when I joined the Army Guard, the funniest thing was I didn't know what time that they would make me start. But I'm like, it's the Army, so it's probably like, oh, dark 30, right? And so, But I didn't want to ask because I didn't want them to think that was a, a consideration. Uh-huh. Um, and then when I got hired and they said, okay, well, what time should I come in? And they said, oh, well, you know, whenever you want. And I'm like...
0: And this was the Army.
1: Yeah, and the reason why is that recruiting, you can't call kids at 7 o'clock in the morning, right? Of course. And so really you kind of start a little bit later. I don't know what your recruiters do today, but I kind of like, you know, I'll come in at like 8.39, and then I'll work till 5.30, 6 or or later sometimes, you know, like doing late. Sometimes the kids can come after school, Mm -hmm. and you're doing a lot of paperwork, and everybody else on the base is long gone at 4 o'clock, and you're still there doing paperwork or meeting people. And so it was kind of like, uh, adjusting your schedule for the audience instead of like meeting a military punch clock. Um, so actually recruiting was a good uh, job for me <laughs> for my non-morning so person. So
0: you could capitalize on your <laughs> yeah, non It worked person. perfectly.
1: It was, it was a perfect match. Perfect. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think that's fine. And now that we're doing COVID, um, I don't, I've been working from home since last March and I'm still working from home. So I don't have to like get up extra early to get dressed and go somewhere and so it's working out good right now it, too. It
0: is kind of nice. I, <laughs> I took the opportunity during our, our year this past year and tried to do this type of job which is very people centric from home and I took one day where I teleworked and set up the office and mm-hmm. took, took digital meetings and you know as an old old person out here to try and do that. I learned a lot about just being self-motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn transitioning from a place where you have to be at work and be seen at work to that telework, uh, work from home? Um, what did you learn about yourself during that process?
1: I think it was a pretty easy transition for me. I think I was you know, more fearful about the pandemic than I was like, I'm like, I'm so thankful that I had the ability to work from home. So. I, any inconveniences or different ways of learning different ways of working was fine. My job is primarily talking to people on the phone all over the country, and so I don't really need to be sitting in an office at the corporation to do that job. You do miss out on the teamwork aspect and getting to see your coworkers in person, but I have members on my team who live in California who I've never even met, mm-hmm. and so we we, we worked together very well, so... I think that it's the pandemic has allowed corporations to realize that there's different ways of doing work and if you don't need somebody to be in the office maybe they don't need to even move to minnesota and so it also allows for maybe more diversity and inclusion in your hiring practices because a lot of people don't want to move to minnesota right and so now you can recruit somebody from atlanta and say just stay there. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's some wins in this whole pandemic thing, you know. And I think it is changing the way work is thought about now. So I think it's, you know, for even though it's tragic, there is some silver linings in the way businesses do work now in the future. Yeah, we'll I, see.
0: I'm thinking yeah. back to your your time as a linguist sitting at Eielson Air Force Base, which is in Fairbanks, Alaska, mm-hmm. which if you don't know Alaska, that's the cold part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and now that kind of work where you weren't on the plane and mm-hmm. you were listening in a box after they got back, that probably could have been done in Atlanta.
1: I think it might be now. Or California. I think it is doing being done that way now.
0: <laughs> it just makes, makes better sense, I guess. Yeah. Amazing. Things have come uh, so far when it when it comes to the way corporate structure is made up, and people are able to work from different places, even in the military. Now we're seeing. Um, I just spoke to a young man yesterday who's working in communications, and he, he's in the military, and it's a telework schedule. Wow! And to me, that just seems so weird. Um, I've always been in a have to be here kind of job, whether it was, you know, as a firefighter, you can't telework firefighting Mm -hmm. and you can't telework security um, or police, law enforcement. Uh, But so much of what we do in the military is changing.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Okay, so usually in the second portion, we do. We shift gears a little bit and have a little bit of fun. Talk about people not being a morning person, and that usually works. Mm-hmm. So let's do some quick questions. Okay. These are short answers. Um, not a lot of thought given. Just a quick one-word answer. You ready? I'm ready. Favorite '80s hair band.
1: Uh, queen.
0: Most unique plant in your garden.
1: Angel's trumpet
0: best thing about living in Germany the beer best thing about living in America freedom corn or soybeans corn movie that made you cry
1: oh god Uh, I can't think all of them (laughs) I can't think of one
0: (laughs) you cried all of them probably yeah we're both emotional people I think that's fair Okay, Uh, tell me about the most unique plant in your garden again.
1: Angel's trumpet. Why? So some people out here know that I had brain surgery, and that plant caused me to discover that I had a brain aneurysm. So that's a whole nother story. But um, because of that, I grow that plant every year.
0: It's poisonous, right?
1: It's poisonous, yeah.
0: Tell me how that plant saved your life.
1: So, I used to work in a greenhouse part-time, and I always grew, like, I have all the unique, interesting, cool plants, and this one, um, gosh, it's kind of a long story, how can I short- shorten it? Um, somehow, when I was plucking the dead flowers off the plant, I got the juice of the plant in my eye when I was mowing my lawn, because it was a really hot day in August, I was working in the garden, and I had to go out to the state fair that day. And when I went inside to put my contacts in, I saw that one of my eyes was dilated, and I was like, whoa, that's weird. So I called the VA, and I, they said, you should probably come in right away. It's like a, a, kind of an emergency situation when one eye is dilated and the other one isn't. But I didn't know that the plant had done it. So I went in. They did some tests and CAT scan, and I said, I did touch this poisonous plant. So they looked it up. It turns out that plant has a toxin that paralyzes the smooth muscle of your eye. So they're like, you're fine. Just a temporary situation. It'll go away in a couple of days. Go home. You're fine. I was like, "Whew, good," you know. So the next morning, I got a phone call, a voicemail, and it said, "Yeah, we got your CAT scan results back, and you have a brain aneurysm." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> and it was the VA, so they're super cash, and they're like, "Hey, call us next week," because it was veteran. It was a Labor Day weekend. They said, "Call in on Tuesday and schedule yourself for an MRI." I'm like, "Okay, it must not be too serious." So I get the MRI. They say you have a brain aneurysm. And so Doc Hamler got involved, helped me find a really great brain surgeon. And so a couple months later, I was having brain surgery. But if that wasn't for that plant, I never would have known. I was walking around with a ticking time bomb in my head. So that plant saved my life. And the title, the name of that plant is Angel's Trumpet. And it's just like it kind of gives you chills to think about that plant gave me the alert that I had a serious problem.
0: I was just thinking about this angel on your shoulder blowing a trumpet in your in your ear. (laughs) Hey.
1: So and and I mean I have to say the wing and the air guard was so gracious to me during that time. I was out for five months and uh, the general at the time general Casalter, sent me a letter saying Sheila just get better don't worry we got you and so I, I had the time to like heal and not be worried about my job or getting back quickly so I was so grateful and so thankful for how i was treated during that time so thank you to the wing Mm
0: we uh we like to say we take good care of people Mm -hmm. and we like to say that the guard is family um
1: and i felt it for sure
0: it's it's powerful that you did Uh, now that you've been in corporate Mm -hmm. how are they doing
1: you know, I think they're pretty good. You know, I'm, every company is probably different, so I can't really speak for the whole corporate world. Um, you know, I think the, the bottom line is, like, when people get laid off or get terminated or they restructure or whatever, the corporation is going to do what's best for the corporation, so it's a little bit different, right? You mm-hmm. have to realize that they're not going to, like, take care of you the same way that the guard took care of you, but at the same time... You're also a free agent, and you can go find another job anytime you want. So, there it's a two-sided coin. So, it's different. Yeah. But I think you know companies have really good benefits and good you know, uh, uh, you know if something like this were to have happened to me at the corporation, I'm sure I would have had long short-term disability and things like that would have kicked in and taken care of me too. Just mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt like I was lucky that it happened when I was in the Air Guard, though, because I felt really blessed.
0: This place does have. Hate to trumpet our own horn here, but it, it does have, that's part of the culture, mm-hmm. it's also part of the structure mm-hmm. um, where we do want to take good care of the people because we know it, there are days where we call on people to do awful and terrible things, and if we don't take care of them on the front end, um, it, it can go very wrong, mm-hmm. and it's good to be able to rely on the people that you serve most closest with mm-hmm. and have that type of culture. Um,
1: and they supported me like on Caring Bridge. I remember I used to get messages from everybody, and uh, somebody from finance brought me cookies. And actually, they brought them to the recruiting office, and the recruiters ate them all. So she had to make them again. You've
0: got to be kidding! <laughs> I take back everything I said about taking. A, they ate all your cookies.
1: It's it's a funny story, but anyway, but what no, is, the, everybody was so uh, caring, and it was like it made the worst thing that had ever happened to me not be so bad. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks for sharing your story yeah. about Angels Trumpet. I was hoping that you would get into it because I had a great conversation with another one of your your close people that you used to work with out here, and um, it, it wasn't sure if you were willing to share that story. Yeah. So, well,
1: and thanks, to Doc Hamler, too, because I may not have had such a good surgical outcome if I hadn't. He he hadn't. Lined me up with the best brain surgeon in town, so Mm -hmm. that was another blessing that came from the guard too. Yeah, we
0: we work with some really amazing people, and and for those folks that aren't familiar, uh, Doc Hamler, who you're speaking of, Mm -hmm. used to be a part of our organization out here. He's also very well established in the civilian sector in in medicine. Yeah. Uh, so knows
1: he's a cranial surgeon on the outside at that time, so he knew all the brain surgeons in town. So. He found the right one for me.
0: Certainly a a very, very smart and (laughs) well-networked doctor, which is great. Uh, He was also a a groundbreaking individual out here, Mm -hmm. Um, first African-American general officer that we Mm -hmm. had in the state of Minnesota. Um, So I'm I'm getting to that. Uh, You got a degree from the University of Maryland Global Campus. Back in 1989, before online learning,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how did you do that?
1: So, uh, when I was stationed in Berlin, I had a supervisor who really wanted to get all of his troops educated. So every semester, he'd bring the class list, in. so University of Maryland had had classes overseas, and they were nighttime classes for you know adult soldiers and airmen, and so I was like. Oh, you know, I was having too much fun. I was in my 20s, and I was on active duty, and I was just having a good old time. And mm-hmm. But he would be like, come on, what class are you going to take? So I'm like, oh, I'll just appease this guy, and I'll sign up for a class or two. And then I found out, oh, I kind of like this. So he got me hooked. Like, I don't know if I would have gotten my degree if this sergeant hadn't, like, encouraged me <laughs> nonstop to, like, take a class, take mm-hmm. a class. And so then I was able to get my um, education completed almost completed before I got out of the active duty because I was taking classes at night and I was having to go TDY so you'd have to make arrangements with the with the professors like hey I'm going to be gone for three weeks and I'm going to miss this test or whatever so we were able to work around it they were serving the military population so they were pretty flexible but yeah it was um I was going to school like four nights a week sometimes Saturdays too for two years straight to get it done so it was a Sacrifice, but I think you—it's good to make those sacrifices when you're young because then mm-hmm. you're going to benefit from it later. So I'm glad that I—I I knocked it out of the park. It and cuts got it into done. your
0: German beer drinking
1: time. It did, yeah. I had to get serious and and study. Yeah.
0: Your degree is in Russian. Russian. And so they had courses in Russian that you could take there at campus mm-hmm. with a live professor.
1: So yes, I did have a Russian professor there. She was an amazing lady. She was. Um, She was hired, she was an American employee at Spandau prison where where Hess was still alive. And so they had a Russian, German, French, and English uh, translator there. So she was the American translator and she spoke fluent. So she was like the English to Russian translator. Mm -hmm. Her Russian was impeccable. I mean, just amazing. And then the Russian interpreter at that school or at that prison, they were these old men. And every time she'd make a mistake, they'd say, oh, you said that word wrong. Oh, you didn't use that word right. So they were like, little did they know. But even though they were picking on her, they were fine-tuning her. So her mm-hmm. Russian was getting better and better yeah. as she worked there. And so she was my professor over there. So she, one of the things that she made us do in our course was she made us study Shakespeare in Russian. And apparently during the um, Soviet era, the best literary writers were too afraid to write their own works because it was dangerous. So they were translating a lot of the great works of English and other languages, and so uh, she said that the Russian Shakespeare was even better than the English Shakespeare.
0: Interesting. <laughs> that that thought that you cannot write down your own literary work because it was dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's a sad situation, right? Yeah. yeah.
0: For sixty percent, for almost. Ninety percent of the people that are serving in the military right now—that's a foreign concept. Yeah. Uh, and yet you were there and, and had to kind of feel that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when I asked you what's the best thing about living in America, you said
1: freedom. Freedom. Mm-hmm.
0: That's one of the the freedom of speech piece mm-hmm. is one of the big things that was just missing from their culture back then. Yeah. What other things did you? We pick took up? it
1: for granted, right? We, we don't do. even think about it, but it's so important.
0: Yeah. And so much of the world that has a free fair you know just society takes it for granted Mm -hmm. Um, and yet people that had to suffer through that time in their life they just don't Mm -hmm. and you had the opportunity to almost learn Mm one-on-one from somebody that had experienced that Mm -hmm. Uh, but you got your degree from maryland global campus Mm -hmm. another person who also Got their degree. See here, I'll I'll work my way backwards. Graduated from the University of Maryland Global Campus. Another groundbreaking woman in the military. Her her name was um, Marcelette Harris. She was the first female aircraft maintenance officer in the Air Force.
1: Oh, my gosh. I
0: know. She graduated from your university. Uh, She was also one of the first women to command the Air Force Academy. First female African-American general officer in the United States Air Force. And at her retirement was the highest female officer in the Department of Defense. Highest female African-American woman in the Department of Defense. So pretty groundbreaking. Yeah. One of the cool things that she did during her career was she was the White House social aide during the Carter administration. And it was at the height of the Cold War, obviously so during social engagements with the russians instead of having a shot of vodka did you know that president carter preferred to have a shot of white wine instead no so they like switched it probably wise diplomacy too Mm -hmm. so let's imagine you and general harris are sitting together with either a shot of vodka or white wine which Mm -hmm. one would you drink
1: if i was gonna do a shot i'd do a shot of vodka
0: okay um I'd probably do the white wine, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: but, know, when I was in Russian school, yeah. um, our professor, our teachers were, at the military schools, our teachers were Russians. So yeah. when I went through in 1980, 81, they were all like old grandparents' age. Yeah. And they would invite you to their house. So the first time it happened, this teacher all invited me and my boyfriend to her house for dinner. And I was 18, like small town, you know, and... Uh, She said, do you mind if we have vodka with our meal? And I was like, I guess not. Like, I didn't want to argue or, like, say no. And so they had shots, like, big shots of vodka. Mm -hmm. And you didn't just sip it. You chugged it down. And then she'd fill them up again. Then we'd have another one. so by, you know, the time you were done with your appetizer, you were, like, you were toasted. Oh, my. But the Russian got a lot better, you know, because then you were, like, uninhibited to speak your Russian better. So it was a fun night, but it was, like, after the event, night was over. My boyfriend said to me, "I can't believe you drank all those shots of vodka." I'm like, "Yeah, I can't believe it either." Oh but my goodness! <laughs> it was that's the culture. That's what Russians do. They they love their vodka, and they they go they you know they have a um, you don't just you don't leave a half half drunken bottle of vodka. You drink the whole thing.
0: Oh my! So <laughs> that makes for a tough. Mo- now <laughs> yes. I know why you're not a morning person, no. Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> so back. So you and General Harris are sitting around and you're talking about um, groundbreaking um, people in the military that have transitioned into the workforce because eventually she transitioned into the workforce. Mm -hmm. What are the top five or six things you guys, and now granted you're taking shots of vodka and white wine, Mm -hmm. so... Uh, what are the top five or six things you think you guys would come up with when it comes to that big transition, especially for women moving into a life on the outside of military service?
1: Well, I'm sure that her and I will have different stories and different notes to compare, but I think some of the things that I see is uh, as a woman veteran, we're kind of invisible. And, you know, there's a campaign, I'm Not Invisible. Have you seen that? Uh, the VA has been doing this campaign. I have not- And, you know, I've experienced it many times where it's really frustrating. Like, I'll be at the VA hospital, I'm a disabled veteran now, and I get my care there. And I'll be sitting way in the bowels of the building, waiting to see a doctor in the waiting room. So I'm like, I'm not just in the lobby, I'm like way in by the doctor, Mm -hmm. you know, entrance. And I'll have another veteran look at me and say, oh, are, are you a medical sales rep? And I'm like, why not just assume that I'm a veteran Instead of, like, thinking that I could be, how there's certain, this woman could certainly not be a veteran. She must be a spouse or a, a medical sales rep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've had the guards at the VA stop my car because I was trying to park in the parking ramp one time, and the guards stopped me and said, are you an employee? And I said, no, I'm a veteran. I have a women's veteran license plate on my car, for crying out loud. But it's just that it's really, it sounds funny, but it's actually really painful when that happens because it's like, just because I'm not an old man with a hat on, like I'm still a veteran, but nobody sees you as that. Right. And so that's a big challenge is like, do employers see you as a veteran or the value that you bring as a veteran? Um, you know, even your own family, does they understand what it means to be a female veteran? And so it, it is definitely challenging, um, to be seen as in, or as in be invisible. So trying to like bring more awareness to that. And I think that Uh, because society thinks of a veteran as basically a man when you think in your head what is a veteran what pops in your head is a picture of a guy Um, that women have a hard time seeing themselves as a veteran even going and getting the services like at the VA they say that not enough women are coming there to get their services because they don't think of themselves as veterans because they're like oh I'm not a guy and I didn't maybe I didn't do combat so therefore I don't I didn't earn it or something. So mm-hmm. that's one of the challenges that women veterans are facing.
0: That's one out of five. Yeah. <laughs> um
1: I, I'd say owning owning what you've what you've done, right? Owning your accomplishments. Um, you know, a lot of times I see women veterans applying too low, like I did for administrative assistant jobs instead of applying for a operations supervisor at a pl- at a manufacturing plant or something like that um, or uh, There's a person at my company who started out she was an e9 when she got out and she started out as a HR person and But she would was probably like I don't know how much she was making But let's just say she was making 40 or 50,000 as an HR person um, But then eventually they hired her as a plant manager They took a chance because they really could see her leadership capabilities, but um So it's like, do we undervalue ourselves? Do the companies undervalue us, or like, you know, how do we get get where we need to be and not be underemployed? And I think men face underemployment, but maybe women even more so because when people look at us, they don't see a, you know, a seasoned veteran, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't think of us that way. You know, I think about the military gives us leadership training at every level, right? Airman's leadership school and NCO leadership school and senior NCO academy or whatever. Um, in the civilian world, what do they get when they move up to the next level of supervision? They might get an hour on how to like fill out the paperwork on supervising people, but they don't get any kind of the leadership training that we get. So we, it's kind of our superpower, but we don't know how to express that, and we don't know how to get civilians to understand the value that that brings to them.
0: I'm so glad that you brought that up because one of the big questions that i have here and maybe this comes down to number three in your list of of things that you and general harris would come Mm -hmm. up with how does a military veteran say i am a good leader on Mm -hmm. a resume or Mm -hmm. on a job application how do they actually say those words
1: Mm -hmm. well i think part of it is education right so we need to figure out the new culture that we're entering and so uh if a Higher manager asks you, what is your leadership style? Well, unless you know how, how civilians label leadership styles, you may not know how to answer that question, right? So, you know, understanding the, the language that they're going to use or studying civilian leadership styles and then under, being able to say, oh, that one describes me, that's helpful, right? Mm-hmm. That's a good way to, to approach it. So I think, you know. Um, there's a, a former Army Guard guy, Eric Allness. He was a 06 over in the Army Guard side. Yep. He joined Cargill, and he used to say, um, you should approach your transition the same way you'd approach a deployment, the same amount of effort and care into preparing for that tr- transition, because when you're heading over to Afghanistan, you're going to have to learn some language, get ready for the culture, you know, do a lot of extra training. And so... If you think I'm just going to float on out of here and then not prepare myself, and then I'm just going to land a job, it's like you're going to get what you put into it, right? And so I talk a lot about um, building new muscles. So you shouldn't just wait until the day before you get out like, oh, maybe I should start like spoofing up my resume. It's like, no, you should start two years ahead of time networking and preparing and learning how the process works so that when you get to that end point, you're ready to make that Successful transition It'll do you, be smoother?
0: Do you think that okay? You've told two stories now about mm-hmm. two guys that transition one was looking for a different work-life balance than the military mm-hmm. and took that Job as a truck driver mm-hmm. and happy as a clam because now they have that yeah. a better sense of work-life balance mm-hmm. the other Said prepare like it's a deployment and mm-hmm. do you think that veterans should look up? when they transition out of the military look across for like the same status level job, or like you've said, so many just look down Mm -hmm. and take a different level job that isn't necessarily fitting their their capabilities, Mm -hmm. but then eventually that company sees them and hires them as a plant manager. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What's the right approach?
1: I think the first step that a lot of people skip is what do I want to be what do I want to do Um, you know taking that time for introspection because sometimes they're just like I need a job and they start applying for jobs and then they get a job and they're like I don't like this it's not a good fit Mm -hmm. and so I think taking that extra time to like think about who do you want to be it's a great opportunity to reinvent yourself maybe you've been in logistics your whole military career but you don't like it well why would you want to go do that again right and so thinking about what will make you happy how do you want to spend the next ten or twenty years of your life? And like, maybe you need to take a you know a ninety degree turn and do something different, um, or maybe you really like what you're doing and you want to continue it. And like, I need to network and find out who's doing that in the civilian world and start figuring that out. But I think unless you take that little bit of extra time to like do some introspection, you're going to be just flailing around trying to like just get a job that pays you some money, but you're not really going to be fulfilled in it or find your niche, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So, again, take some time and put some work into what you're going to do on the next step.
1: Mm-hmm. Are you happy? Am I happy? Mm-hmm. I'm very happy. Yeah, I feel like I, I'm blessed to be in the position I'm at. Uh, I, I worked for a company. I, I think when I was making my transition, when I was doing that introspection, I was like, okay, I want to find a company that um, has a good mission, right? Because I love the mission out here, right? When I talk to young people I could tell them about the mission. Our mission is a C-130 unit. We do aeromedical evacuation. We do humanitarian stuff. We do troop transport and equipment transport. We're not part of the fighting game. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's just not our role here. And that was a little bit of an easier sell with the parents, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, when I found Cargill, their mission is to help feed the world in an environmentally sustainable way. And then I wanted to find a company, which I really love. Kind of, I'm kind of a tree hugger. Um, and then my other... Thing was I wanted to find a company with good values because I didn't want to be representing a company that was doing shady business right Because so I wanted to be not working for a company that I wake up in the news or some news story about something bad that they did right Your story
0: about the glass table just kind of made me think of that you yeah know, nothing under the table yes right?
1: and so I found like a really happy home at cargo because the values and the mission line up with my values and my mission and so that was important to me right um so I think that me being clear that I wouldn't want to work for a company that didn't align with those two things helped me, guide me in my job search.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're happy.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: Sheila, thanks for taking the time to be on the podcast with me and talk about, I mean, we have hours that we could continue going in here, but unfortunately I've got ai have a time limit on my, on my podcasts here, but the heart and the soul and the values that you brought to your job out here, like I've said, I mean, over half our wing has been impacted by you. Thanks for making such a good impact on our wing and continuing that impact with veterans that you're working with now, especially in your civilian career. So I appreciate you being on the pod with me.
1: Thank you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Hey, I hope that you join me again on another fascinating podcast for our next go-round. And until then, take care.